The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost missed the sermon. I had to run in here. So, Cotton Mather was a, it's a name that you probably remember from your high school history class. He's a Puritan pastor, and he writes in his diary that one day he was standing outside, and this was in the early 1700s, urinating against a wall. It's a nice setup for a sermon, huh? Those people that are running late back from the break are going to wonder, what is going on? But the story gets only better because as he is urinating, a dog wanders up to the wall and as dogs, at least male dogs do, lifts his leg and uh, he begins to relieve himself against the same wall. And as any good pastor does, makes observations of the physical world and what's going on, he begins to reflect upon the spiritual significance of this man and this dog urinating against the same wall at the same time. And this journal has been printed, and it comes to us 300 years later or so. He says, I was once emptying the cistern of nature. (laughs) That's what I call it, you know. I was once emptying the cistern of nature and making water at the wall. At the same time, there came a dog who did so too. Thought I, what mean and vile things are the children of men in this mortal state? How much do our natural necessities abase us and place us in some regard on the same level with dogs? My thought proceeded, yet I will be more noble, and when my natural necessities debase me into the condition of the beast, my spirit shall rise and fly up toward the employment of the angel." Now, that is a lot going on at a stall or taking a leak. Accordingly, he says, whenever I step to answer one or the other necessity of nature, that's number two if you're wondering, to make it an opportunity of shaping my mind, some holy, noble, divine thought that may leave upon my spirit some further tincture of piety. This is uh, Puritan potty humor, and this humor, his reflections in his diary, comes roughly 50 years after Descartes had his famous statement that I think, therefore I am, postulating this disembodied thinker as the foundation of human philosophy for hundreds of years to come, and the basis for what we remember as the Enlightenment, which had many good things attached to it, and yet is not an unmitigated good. And we notice how Cotton Mather, even though he's writing barely 50 years later, is writing with these same sensibilities. This, his observations have this dichotomy between 
his body, which is base and bare necessity, and his spirit and his mind, which should be focused upon God. And this bodily urge, the cistern of nature emptying it, is bare necessity, and it's something that should be avoided. And so I can just imagine Cotton Mather delaying going to the bathroom because he's praying, and he can't do both at the same time, or he has to figure out a way because this is base and this is evil. He has these two ways of thinking about himself, the soul or the spirit and the body, that represent and correspond, if not strictly evil, but good in what is merely expedient, what is merely necessary. And this, found, this thinking, this philosophy has been the foundation of Western thought for 300 years. And this enlightenment model of anthropology, that is how we understand ourselves, is sort of this brain on sticks, that our brain, our spirit, our mind, that is what matters about us. And we can kind of dispense of caring about our body. And it's knowledge. If you're a student right now in high school, college, it doesn't matter. If you're a student, you are learning knowledge in many ways that is divorced from ethical considerations. It's divorced from pathos, how we feel about the world. It's divorced from bodily knowing and how we move through the world as not brains on sticks, but integrated holes where our spirit and body is integrated to such a way that it's hard to pull apart. It's hard to talk about one instead of the other. Now, to risk radical oversimplification, this sort of dualistic understanding has really reaches way back before Descartes into Greek philosophy when the Bible was being written, when the passage that we read from the Apostle Paul, that he was walking and thinking in these terms. And Christianity since then has had this complicated relationship with dualism, with what we would consider Gnostic thought right after the Bible was written. That is a particular form of dualism that Christianity has said alternatively is a heresy, and yet we've tended to embody it in our theological systems. Think about how do you identify a church that you should go to? You look on their website, of course, and what is printed there almost without fail? It is a statement of doctrinal beliefs. How do you get into that church? How do you join? You sign off on those beliefs, and you say, this is what I believe too. It's all cognitive. There's very rarely anything on a church website that talks about pathos that is required or about praxis, practice. Maybe it would delineate a very narrow set of moral proscriptions, right? And they generally are in the sexual area. You shall not do these things, but as long as you avoid those things, that's really all that we care about your practice. And we send ministers like me to seminary for three years to cram a bunch of knowledge and information into our heads, some of which, most of which maybe, we won't use in 30 years of ministry. And in all of those three years, I took one class that was called Practical Theology. What does that presume about the rest of the classes I took? That they are not practical, and I'll grant you that many of them weren't. Now, before I lose all of you, you probably like the peace story, but maybe this philosophy is losing you a little bit. I want to bring us back together. 
Because all of this cognitive analysis of the way that we do life cognitively, ironically, has a very practical purpose. Because this division of body and soul, it directs the way that we move through the world. It directs the way that we think about ourselves and others, the way that we make decisions, the way that we relate to God. And for our purpose in this sermon series, the way that we think about wellness, about being whole. And this week, we're looking at the overview of this embodiment problem, both in philosophy as well as in the church and theology, that we operate, as Sting says in your bulletin, as spirits in the material world, and that creates problems for us. And to be well, to be whole, we have to bridge that chasm and bring them back together and ask God to knit us back together into the persons that He makes us to be. And then next week, we're going to talk about body and beauty, body image, body shaming and vanity. Now, if you were to get sleepy in this sermon, it happens. I know it's hard to believe, but some people do. I see it. I see the holy head bob out there. If you get sleepy, you're likely not to put your feet up on the pew in front of you. You're likely not to just kind of lay over, maybe your kids do, but lay down and start snoring. Because why? Because we've agreed as a culture, as a society, that there are certain ways of being bodily in this place that are appropriate and not. We know that the holy head bob is maybe okay. Maybe we can hide behind the pole or the pastor won't notice. But laying down, kicking our feet up, it's a little bit odd. We know that in our bodies. Joel, my good friend here, predates me at this church. He was here before I was. And he is sitting, he is sat, sitting. What is the right? Sat. There you go. Thank you, Meg. Meg's another one that always sits in the same place. That was the point of me bringing this up is that Joel has sat in the same place for 15 years. And he's very proud of this location. It's not to crowd anyone out or claim it as his, although I'm kind of a bad person. I really wanted to kind of sit in that place one day just to see what he does. But I'm always up here. But there's a certain way of being bodily in this place that this particular location for Joel represents this worshipful posture. And he knows how to do worship as his body is seated in a certain place looking from a certain perspective, and to put him in another place, it doesn't make worship invalid, but it changes the way that he thinks about worship, and he interacts with God. You see, our bodies direct our thinking sometimes. You've probably heard that communication is 90% verbal, and it's not true, but it is over 50%, sometimes 60% of the way that we communicate is with our bodies and with tone and our posture. And even if we believe that our brains, with our brains, that we are mostly cognitive beings that happen to inhabit a body, we don't communicate in this way. We don't listen in this way. We don't interact in this way. 
Paul says in this passage that was read that our bodies, this body, it is a temple of God's Spirit, that His Spirit inhabits physical place, and He makes that physical place holy. Now, theologians who um, tend to kind of divide and conquer the Bible and separate it into different categories, and there's room for that and there's space for that, but theologians over the years have looked at the Bible and they've noticed words like body and words like soul, and they seem to refer to different parts of our existence, and others have added a third. And so it's very critical when you're in seminary and going up for ordination to know whether you're a dichotomous, that is two, or a trichotomous, that is three, body, soul, and spirit. And it's very important because there's no third option. You have a soul, you have a body, and maybe a spirit, but then what is the you that's observing those things? Where are you in that mix. Now, thankfully, some have said, now, wait a minute. The Bible here isn't speaking about parts of us. It's talking in an aspectual way. It's talking about aspects of our human nature, that we are all of these things, but it's not pulling them apart, that we are spiritual beings, we're physical beings, we're relational beings, we're emotional beings, We're eternal beings, we're sexual beings, and we relate to God in all of these aspects, not just one. You see, your your body, if this will help bring it home, your body is not simply the, the car that drives your soul around. And so, your body is not the beat up Ford Torino from Big Lebowski that all it's good for is carrying the dude and his credence tapes around. That's not all that your body is. It's not just utilitarian to get you from point A to B. And then going to heaven is to leave behind this container that you've inhabited. But it's not merely utilitarian. It's not nothing, but neither, you see, is it everything. Our bodies also don't fully define us to where Our bodies are beautiful and fast and lean, but you're not really sure, are they going anywhere? Where are we going to drive them? Is there anywhere meaningful to go with our bodies? And so, they sit in a garage where we observe. And this is the 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. Anyone know where I'm going with this? Anyone recognize this? Less than 100 of them were made. It's great to look at. It's great to admire, take lots of pictures of it to put on Instagram, but it doesn't have anywhere to go because there's no spiritual aspect. There's no meaning. And so, it sits in a cold garage until Ferris Bueller steals it, and then it's driven out the back of the house and crashed. And it's his fault, the dad's fault, that he didn't lock the garage. Your body is you. It doesn't define your whole experience. It's not nothing, nor is it everything. But it's not an appendage. It's not a container. It's not simply the car that drives you around to get to where your spirit needs to be. You were created as a physical being, as an integrated whole 
And as we read last last week, when God makes you, He says, it is good. This person, all of them is good. This body isn't just given to you to cart you around until it's time for God to take your soul away. All of you is good. Now, wholeness then is not necessarily something that we strive for because it's something that we are that we don't recognize and that we live as if it's not true. Think with me for a moment to make it practical. When we feel badly about our bodies, doesn't that tend to kind of filter into other parts of our lives? We grow insecure, we grow meek, we grow fearful. Our body informs our emotions. And uh, conversely, when we feel strong, we feel fit, we feel like we can conquer the world, and we go to work and we get stuff done. Our emotional, our spiritual disease, as we talked about briefly in the confession time, this dis-ease rumbles, it reverberates in us bodily. And so, undealt with anger manifests it manifests itself sometimes in violent outbursts physically. Our stress bubbles up into panic, into anxiety. Our existential, our distress, vertical distress, we medicate it. We soothe it bodily with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with food. Those are our solutions to our existential dread. So we know that we live that way. We know that we're integrated wholes, and yet we fight against it, and our cognitive brain begins to divide and conquer. Now, the gospel passage that we read, it predates a lot of the psychological and neurological findings that we know now how integrated we are, and we can see it. You can put it on a monitor and look at yourself and know that these things are created. It predates all of this modern society science that sort of explains it. But Jesus here gives us a spirituality that presumes it nonetheless. In fact, the Gospels tell us of a God who becomes embodied, a God who actually inhabits physical space. Matthew talks about this unbegotten creator God who exists unbodied, is fundamentally transcendent and omnipresent at the same time, and yet in Jesus becomes radically imminent and localized. He takes on flesh, your flesh, our flesh, and He makes it holy in doing so. The incarnation, that is the transcendent God inhabiting physical imminent space, the incarnation means that matter matters to God, and it should matter to us. And what we tend to pull apart that is body and soul or body and spirit, spirituality and sensuality, teaching and doing, words of proclamation and works of justice, orthodoxy, right thinking, and ortho praxis, right practice, those things that we tend to separate. Jesus is constantly binding and constantly holding together 
and constantly practicing as if they exist in such a way that you can't do that. Chapter 4 that we read is very early in his ministry, and he's, he's calling his disciples. They're fishermen. And against type, he also calls women into his close circle as followers, as disciples. They're in the story, but in this male-centric, very patriarchal context, the presence of the women isn't front and center, yet it's subtext. And sometimes subtext is the most powerful thing to undermine our presuppositions and our prejudices. They have this powerful presence in subtext. But here, Matthew is talking about the calling of these four men, Andrew and James and Peter and John, and they're doing their work as fishermen. And you would think that their job as fishermen would set up, was, is there to set up this contrast. These sweaty guys are doing this grueling, exhausting, labor-intensive job, and now Jesus is coming to call them to something better, something spiritual. Now he's coming to say, leave your nets and come study Torah with me. Come learn how to pray. But he doesn't do that. At least that's not the record that we have. In fact, the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier today, that comes because someone asks Jesus to pray. They need to know how to, how to pray at the end of being with Him for a couple of years. Very interesting. Jesus interrupts them in their profession. And while likely they went back at some point to some kind of vocation, He takes them out of their profession momentarily, but they don't move, you see, from physically arduous, fatiguing work, that's not the contrast, then into this realm of better work, of contemplation, of isolation, of being alone, alone, thinking with the mind and the soul. What does He say instead? He says, follow me. Follow. Not just align your mental concepts with those things that I'm teaching you but follow me. Not come to rabbi school with me. He invites them, you see, into this community of work that while spiritual in nature and has a spiritual component, is arduous itself. And it can be physically exhausting. It's radically demanding and yet at the same time integrating and leads to wellness. You see, sometimes when we're tired, it's not because we've been going. It's not because we're physically tired because we haven't taken a step or a stop. Sometimes we're tired because we're running around doing non-integrated things. We're living without wholeness, and so we have to stop and take a breath. He gives them an invitation to follow Him in life, in an embodied way. And there's still jobs today in our culture that kind of represent this, where the learning, the cognitive learning required is rather minimal because you learn from a mentor. You think about electricians, mechanics, plumbers, welders. The cognitive development in these trades 
is almost never divorced from the practical practice of being a welder, being an electrician. It's experiential. It's hands-on. They learn and watch and do, and then they do and watch and learn. And then eventually, they become the mentor and they teach. And so, our trades are often so much better than our best universities at educational theory. Now, let me try and wrap up. What does Jesus do? He preaches verbally the good news. He gives mental constructs and practical teaching, and He heals diseases and infirmity. He tells people the good news that God has moved into their lives and wants a relationship with them, while at the same time liberating them from those physical ailments and physical things that would keep them isolated socially, religiously, spiritually. He lives with His disciples in the realm of agriculture, of food, of hunger, of eyesight, of walking, of physical touch, of thirst, of community life, of engendered life, of sexual life. Think about all of His metaphors and His teachings and parables. They're all in the lived world. They're all on earth. In fact, He doesn't leave us with anything written. but He leaves us with a way of being in the world. And so, think about your life as we close. Is reading your Bible personally more spiritual than going for a run? Do you like the motion there? That was… I just made that up. Is reading the Bible more spiritual than going for a run? Well, I'm not going to tell you because it's not a dualistic answer. It's not a binary yes or no. A lot of that depends on what's going on in your life, but we tend to think one over the other, don't we? Is fasting or feasting more important to God? Think about the Bible if you've read it before and know it, how many feasts there are in the Bible versus how many fasts and how many times the Bible talks about fasting. Is reading a theology book more important than reading a book about prison reform? or racial inequality, or food deserts in our city, which is more important? Or why do we even call one theology and the other sociology or whatever it might be? Why do we divide like that? Desmond Tutu says, I don't preach a social gospel. I preach the gospel, period. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the whole person. When people are hungry, Jesus didn't say, now that is political, or social. He said, I feed you because the good news to a hungry person is bread. It's a non-dualistic gospel. It's not good news for brains on stick sticks, but it's good news for our brains and our minds and our spirit and our bodies, especially those that are enslaved, especially those that are, that are exploited, those that have a certain way of being in the world sexually that doesn't fit the norm, those whose color of their bodies sort of invites provocation and invites violence more than other bodies do. If Jesus' good news is not good news for those types of situations, then how is it good? We come to church, you see, not to escape from the world, 
not to fill our brains, not to think about just cognitive things, but to live into the next. And that's why every week we have a commission. Sunday, friends, is not more important than Monday. They're necessary for one another. And your devotional life is not separate from or better than your so-called spiritual life. Your devotional life and spiritual life are not better than your work life or your exercise routine or your recreational life. It's interconnected. Wholeness is something that is, and it's something that we pursue as we pursue wellness. And wellness comes when we recognize life as it is and recognize us as we are, as integrated whole, that Jesus sees all of you, and He loves you. And He's not concerned just for your spirit, but He wants to heal you personally in every way that that makes sense for you. You see, He comes not to save souls, but He comes to save people. He comes in a body laying down His life for the life of the world. He comes to us in a body and He leaves us not with a book of systematic theology, a book of wisdom, but He leaves us with His life. He leaves us with a resurrected body. And He leaves us with a meal to eat together. In preparation for leaving, for separating into the real world, we eat a meal together to say that we are in this together. And we come and we participate by feeding on physical elements that the Bible tells us are enriched and infused with spiritual life, with grace. And we taste the grace, we smell the grace, and we feed upon the grace, and we are enriched in our bodies to go forth and live out of grace. And so I invite you, if you are someone who needs grace, if you long to feed upon the richness of God, then this is a meal for you. And if you are here this morning and you're kicking the tires of Christianity, exploring, then that is perfectly fine, and that's where many people in this room are. Don't feel like you have to do anything out of compulsion, but feel free to sit and contemplate, read the quotes, read the passages, and ask God to come and meet you in the place that you actually are that place on the spectrum of your spiritual journey, the place, the physical place that you are seating, sitting at this moment. Let's pray for our meal. Father, thank you for being real to us, for inhabiting space, inhabiting a body, and in fact, as Paul tells us in Corinthians, inhabiting us, that you live inside of us. I pray that we would live as if that's true, that we would eat of these elements as if that is true, and that you would make us more strong, that you would make us more courageous, that you would break down those barriers that we erect that divide this table from the tables that we sit at this week. Help us to see them in very similar ways, that we need the same grace in both, and let us bring grace to one another and bring grace to a hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.